I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, an artist and psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 275 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. Today, Dr. Maury Joseph is presenting a lecture on the patient as our unconscious supervisor. Dr. Maury Joseph is licensed in Washington, D.C. and Pennsylvania, but can work via teletherapy across many states due to PSI-PACT. For more information about him, visit his website, maurijoseph.com. You can support Rendering Unconscious Podcast at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Huge, huge thanks to everyone in our Patreon community. Your support is greatly appreciated. Rendering unconscious is a labor of love. I do not accept any funding from outside sources, grants, or advertisers. So huge thank you for everyone who chooses to support us at Patreon. You may view a video of this lecture at YouTube. Links to everything can be found at the main website, renderingunconscious.org. Special for many reasons. First of all, because uh, the Washington School of Psychiatry is is home for me as a as a clinician, and it's uh, where all the best teaching and training and supervision that I've had occurred. Um, and it's also special because I see so many friends and people I know uh, that that came out. So that's super nice. Um, and also, this is a topic that's of, of great interest to me and. Um, that I'm always happy to talk about. So, um, uh, and I'm a clinical psychologist. Uh, I've got a private practice. Um, uh, I, I used to work in Washington, DC, but in June I moved to Pennsylvania, which is where I physically am now. And I'm licensed here and I have SIPAC and, and I pretty much do all my work now through telehealth, uh, at, at least until there seems to be more demand for the in-person meetings. Uh, so I'm sort of, uh, I'm a, I'm a therapist in the cloud. Um, uh, anyway, uh, let's let's get into it. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I'm going to share my screen so you can see my PowerPoint that I made. Let's see. Share screen. Uh, can you all see it? Yes. Good. Thank you, John. Um, so... Uh, the topic for today is, is what I'm calling the patient as our unconscious supervisor. Uh, ideally, the patient is awake. They're not unconscious in the sense of um, not being awake. Um, uh, but the idea of today is uh, trying to learn to listen for signals from patients that they give us unintentionally, non-consciously, without meaning to, that we can use for the purposes of guiding our interventions in the same way uh, a, a supervisor would help us with that, okay? Um, and we're gonna be drawing from the work of the two uh, psychiatrists pictured here. One is Habib Davenlu, and we'll talk more about him, and the other is Robert Langs. Uh, the goals for today is gonna to be focusing on response to intervention. Um, so 
how uh, when we listen to our patients' responses to the things we say and do, um, how can we gather information about um, the impact that our interventions had, uh, whether they were useful and helpful or not, um, so that we can you know, adjust our interventions based on that feedback. And we're gonna look at two important hypotheses from the literature. Uh, there are many hypotheses from the literature that, that could help us guide our listening, but I'm picking these two because uh, not only are they my favorite, but I think they're very powerful. Uh, and if we have time, we'll get to a clinical example. Um, uh, I just wanna say, this is my own interpretation and synthesis of the literature. Uh, I'm, I'm not an analyst, but I've been studying the analytic literature for over 10 years and with a special emphasis on technique and listening. And so this is sort of what I've come up with as a way of going about um, uh, understanding our patients' responses to our interventions. So uh, response to intervention is sort of uh, a dimension of thinking about outcomes in psychotherapy. And we, we don't have time to talk about this as a group, but this is a question you can sort of silently ask yourself is how do I assess outcomes, right? Uh, do you, you know, raise your hand if you give uh, pre and post uh, testing or you, or you give some kind of a, a, a survey or index prior to starting therapy and you do one after, raise your hand. All right, so at least I can't see everybody, but uh, how about long-term follow-up? You know, maybe six months, a year out. Do you, um, you know, do you, assess outcomes of long-term follow-up. Um, <clears throat> between sessions, this sort of intermediate term, uh, feedback-informed therapy is very popular right now. Um, so many people are sending their patients surveys between sessions um, and gathering data about the patient's response to their interventions that way. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about immediate-term feedback, near-term feedback. What is feedback that we can be gathering in the session while we're with the patient? Um, because you know these long-term and intermediate-term ways of getting feedback, though they're useful, they don't really help us clinically in the sense that the feedback arrives after the patient has already left. So how can we be gathering feedback in the session so that we can be uh, shaping our clinical approach based on the patient's responses that we're seeing moment by moment right in front of us? And, and this, this uh, project has been compared to trying to find a psychological pulse. Um, Leston Havens, whose, whose work I love and I, who I encourage you all to read, in one of his lectures that's on YouTube, he talks about how he was walking through, <clears throat> excuse me, I've got a cold, um, uh, how he's walking through the ER on his way to the psychiatry department and he's feeling envy of his medical colleagues because if a patient uh, is, uh, if, if their pulse is crashing, um, the physicians are going to get response data about their interventions very quickly. Right? You try to resuscitate the patient and either the pulse stabilizes or doesn't. You try to uh, give oxygen and either the pulse stabilizes or it doesn't. Uh, the feedback is very concrete at the physical level, whereas for therapists, that tends not to be the case. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, and that's why therapists need hobbies like cooking or gardening, where, you know, if you do this, you will get this result, because therapy just doesn't tend to operate like that. But there are um, 
there are some people within the psychodynamic tradition who have attempted to um, who have attempted to approximate a psychological pulse to to find signals that would point to something like a pulse. Um, this this concept was called by Harold Searles, uh, unconscious supervision. Uh, Robert Langs, who we're going to talk about some today, uh, called it unconscious commentary or unconscious confirmation, validation of interventions. And what they were looking for are, uh, you know, they're asking this question, are there non-conscious signals um, that we can follow and that we can look for that uh, in our patients' immediate responses to our interventions that can tell us about the impact of our interventions, that can tell us about how the intervention might have been experienced and about whether it was valid, whether it had truth value for the patient. Um, so, and here's a question for the group if somebody wants to answer, uh, why do we prefer non-conscious or implicit or unintentional feedback over intentional feedback like we would get say in a survey? or if we were to directly probe the patient, what did you think of my last intervention? Why do we prefer feedback that they didn't mean to give? Might be more honest. Like, um, they might wanna comply when they, um, when they give direct feedback and if it's unconscious, it's like coming from, from their core. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's pretty fair, yeah. Um, you know, feedback given consciously will be impacted by the patient's resistance. It'll be impacted by the uh, interpersonal dynamics of the therapy, right? So if you have a compliant patient, they might tend more to give you positive feedback, even if that's not the whole truth. Uh, if you have an argumentative devaluing patient, I, I know a lot of you work in DC, so you know something about that. If you have an argumentative devaluing patient, no matter how well the therapy's going, they, they might uh, give critical feedback. Um, so, so we want to we want to look uh, for unconscious feedback uh, because it's uh, less likely to be impacted by those kinds of defenses and interpersonal styles. At least that's the hypothesis we're operating under, which you are free to disagree with and critique. So, uh, to approximate a pulse, we try to correlate and cross-reference verbal, nonverbal, and countertransference data to form and test our hypotheses about what's happening in the relationship what's happening in the patient's mind. We try to tether our hypotheses to observable data points as a way to uh, ward off the kind of uh, intuitionism that can sometimes impact our work. Uh, I'm not against intuition. I think intuition is an important part of the work, but it, it can also be very useful to uh, tie our intuitions or find uh, supportive data for our intuitions in the uh, in the utterances and behaviors of, of that happen in the session. And um, so the therapy model I'm sort of espousing here is that uh, based on what we're seeing, we're forming a silent hypothesis um, that we about what's happening with the patient's mind. We're gonna test that hypothesis through an intervention. And then we're gonna monitor the patient's response uh, and based on their response, modify our hypothesis if it needs to be modified. And then again, test that new, new renewed hypothesis with an intervention. So it's really a uh, almost a scientific way of going about listening where we're form formulating hypotheses based on what we're seeing and hearing uh, and uh, uh, testing that out. 
So the first person whose work we're going to look to in thinking about response to intervention uh, is Robert Langs, who's a psychoanalyst in New York. He died, I believe, in 2009. He was a prolific author. I think uh, at least 40 books, hundreds of uh, papers. Um, uh, you know, can't do much of a historical lecture on Langs today, but it, it would be, he's an interesting figure to study. And one of his contributions was to synthesize and also to build on uh, contributions within the psychoanalytic literature about uh, listening for responses to interventions, for, for signs that either what he called confirm the intervention or validate the intervention, or signs that are non-confirmatory or non-validating, uh, uh, signs that the intervention didn't help or didn't work. Um, the first thing that's important to differentiate for in studying Langs is the difference between conscious and unconscious confirmation. For Langs, conscious confirmation is basically whether the patient seems to manifestly agree or disagree with you. So you offer some hypothesis, you offer some idea to the patient, some uh, insight you're hoping to give them, uh, and they say, oh, yeah, oh, interesting thought. Or they say, you know, no, actually, I disagree. So that's, that's the sort of conscious response. Uh, but even going back to Freud's technique papers, uh, the idea existed in psychoanalysis that um, the conscious response, like Laura was suggesting, um, may be uh, a, def a defensive response. And at the very least, it's not the only data point we ought to be listening to in trying to ascertain the patient's total response to intervention. Uh, because, for instance, a compliant patient may, uh, may heartily agree with something you've asserted, but then go on to share a bunch of additional information that actually contradicts the idea that you put out there. Um, and, and similarly, uh, a more argumentative patient, a more defiant patient may disagree with you up and down, uh, criticize what you're saying, but then go on to tell like three stories that actually confirm and support um, the hypothesis you've offered. So conscious confirmation is but one data point. And Langs is very interested in unconscious confirmation. So he's looking at uh, what are signs in response to our intervention that it was an effective intervention. And he's looking at his own clinical data and the data of his supervisees. In Yes, yes. The slides aren't advancing. Uh, I think maybe you want them to for the recording. Yeah, sure, of course. Um, they're not advancing, huh? No, not on the big screen. So you don't see one that says Robert Lang's unconscious versus con conscious confirmation? No, we see the patient as our unconscious supervisor. The first slide still oh my up. my goodness, wow. Thank you for telling me, Diane. Sure. That's the kind of direct feedback that we need as therapists. Um, all right, I'm gonna stop sharing and I'm gonna try sharing again and see if that gets it going again. Um, what do you see? How about now? How? Um, now it's, it's moving now. Okay, I'm just gonna leave it like this then. Um, so, so for Langs, th thanks again, Diane. Really, good to see you. Um, the confirmatory responses, uh, some of them that he documents are, are those that add to, enrich, or develop the material that's coming up in the session. 
this. So um, in if in response to intervention, if in response to an intervention, you're seeing the following things, Langs is happy. Langs thinks it's been a valid intervention. So uh, the emergence of previously unmentioned memories, especially those that add support or detail to the uh, interpretation you've just given or the hypothesis you've just offered, um, content that adds new perspectives on old content. So suddenly based, you know, you've made some intervention where you commented on a relationship dynamic, say, between the two of you. And all of a sudden the patient has new perspectives on other relationships in their life. Whereas maybe they've previously had a stereotyped concept of, uh, of their relationship with their mother that they talked about over and over again. Now having hashed something out in the transference with you, they have a new perspective on that old relationship. Langs likes that. Um, uh, new contents in general. Um, so say suddenly, you know, you've you've made some intervention that seems to increase the patient's faith and trust in you, and suddenly they share a symptom with you that they had never shared with you before, something they had never told anyone before, you know, some secret ritual or, or addiction that they had been scared to bring up in the initial interview. Um, and then evidence of symptom relief, uh, Lang's likes, although that's a that's a complex one that maybe we should talk later why symptom relief is a complex indicator. Um, uh, and for Lang's, uh, examples of non-confirmatory responses are sort of the opposite of the confirmatory responses. So if you're seeing lack of fresh or new associations, if the session remains kind of uh, repetitive or ruminative, um, you're not hearing new contents, new perspectives, uh, and also important for Lang's is associations that contradict your intervention are, th are then non-confirmatory. Say, you know, you offer a particular idea about something that's happening in the relationship and the patient says three or four different things that seem to contradict the way you were perceiving it. You know, you, you may have an argumentative patient, but you may also be wrong. <clears throat> and it may be time to reformulate and, and, and uh, you know, augment your perspective with the feedback the patient is giving. And I would say generally, you know, I've, I've sort of informally surveyed colleagues um, in listservs uh, and Facebook groups. I've asked around, you know, how do you listen for response to intervention? What principles do you follow? And it seems that these are the really popular and common ones among psychodynamic therapists, uh, especially the, the issue of um, the, this, the indicator of new or uh, fresh material coming out. Um, that, that seems to be most people that I talk to, that's their indicator of a positive response to intervention is fresh ideas, new ideas, something different. Um, but Langs has one more additional fun way of listening that I think is really useful and uh, has some clinical power and utility that I will tell you about. <clears throat> and it's in the realm of unconscious commentary. Um, so Langs' hypothesis is that in response to our intervention, the patient may tell stories or offer narratives or offer thoughts or dreams um, that implicitly allude to their feelings about and their responses to what we've said. And so for Langs, our interventions are almost like the day residue 
of Freudian dream theory. Um, our interventions, the atmosphere of the relationship, the qualities of the relationship uh, will trigger associated fantasies, memories, images, feelings, just like, uh, uh, and of course, unconscious fantasies, images, memories, feelings, just like the day residue of a dream. Um, and that these, uh, as these fantasies, images, memories, and feelings are brought nearer to consciousness by the day residue, um, they of course have to be censored and compromised as in the dream work in the formation of a dream. And so what you get in the end, per Langs, uh, are these narratives, which, which we call the manifest content of the session, like the manifest content of a dream in Freud. <clears throat> we get these manifest narratives that allude subtly, implicitly to our intervention or to the qualities of the relationship uh, in a displaced fashion, uh, much like uh, in a dream, uh, and that uh, the patient's feelings about our intervention are sort of like the latent content of the dream that can be interpreted uh, either silently to ourselves or openly uh, in the same way a dream can be interpreted. Uh, I'll give you some examples. Here's a little graphic if that, if that interests you um, of sort of the, the dream work, but this, here, here this is how the patient dreams the session in a sense, um, where the day residue is your intervention that triggers these latent unconscious memories that must be censored, uh, displaced and condensed and other defenses intervene. That's the dream work producing the dream or the narrative that the patient will share. So one example is, okay, let's say you're, tr you're trying to be a, a Freudian therapist. Oh, check out my mug, Pink Freud <laughs> on, on topic. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Um, <clears throat> uh, so say you're trying to be a Freudian therapist and you're working with a patient with a phobia, okay? And you know from reading Freud that he basically says, at a certain point, uh, you'll run out of things to work on in the therapy if the patient isn't interfacing with the phobic object. If they're completely avoiding the phobic object, uh, you're not gonna be able to proceed in the work. And that's a necessary for Freud part of working with phobias was at some point, pressuring the patient to go look at the thing, right? And so you're trying to be Freudian and you've been analyzing this phobia for months and you, you think that the patient is ready to go face with the phobic object. And at the end of your Monday session, you say this to the patient. And then they come back for their Thursday session and they say, you know, Maury, it's so weird. I had this dream, but it was like a dream of a memory from childhood. It was like a memory coming back of this one time I went to the dentist and he, I needed to get a cavity filled and the dentist injected me with Novocaine, but it didn't work. And then I told him and he injected me again with more Novocaine and it still wasn't numbing me out. And the dentist got impatient and decided that he was just gonna drill anyway. And it was like this horrific nightmare where the Novocaine wasn't working and I was feeling all the sensations of the drill going through my tooth. And I, I've, I, I've always lived with that memory. Like, why did he do that to me? Right? So this is the first story that comes to the patient's mind in his associations in your Thursday session. Now, 
if you don't want to be Langsian about it, that's okay. And you could say, look, Maury, a cigar is just a cigar. Just because the patient brings up this harmful intervention by a doctor uh, doesn't mean it has anything to do with your confrontation in the previous session. But if you want to be Langsian about it, you can think to yourself, hmm, you know, I offered this confrontation at the end of last session that this patient should go and do this anxiety provoking thing. And then he comes in uh, telling a story of a guy that basically operated on him without anesthesia. Could this be an allusion to my intervention? Could this dream and this association to the dream be an allusion to, you know, was my confrontation premature? Have we not worked enough on anxiety regulation, Novocaine, um, for him to go and face with this, uh, uh, with this uh, phobic stimulus, the, the drill? So again, that, that's one way you can use this Langsian style of listening as a way of assessing the patient's response to your intervention. And there's also implicit supervision in it, which is, you know, Mari, wait for the Novocaine to set in before you send me off to my phobic stimulus again. What, you know, help me with learning to better regulate my anxiety. Um, help me with the unconscious anxieties that make it a phobic stimulus bef before this confrontation that I should go face it. Um, another example would be like, let's say you make one of those beautiful, like no wonder statements. You ever get to make a no wonder statement where like the patient had been wondering about something and you can then say, no wonder you've been, no, no wonder it's, it's, it's been so, uh, anxiety provoking for you to make new friends and you felt so shy because, because making friends, uh, is such an ambiguous and open-ended stimulus and, uh, and you felt so much more comfortable in your life and safe in the concrete and known. And no wonder therapy has been so anxiety provoking for you for that matter, because therapy's open-ended just like that. This isn't computer programming. You're, you're comfortable in computer programming. And, uh, and it's so, it's been so hard for you that the rest of your life is, is not computer programming, right? So nice, nice intervention that tries to put some things in perspective. And then the patient, thinks about it, sits back and says, you know, for some reason, I, I'm just thinking about uh, when I moved a couple months ago, one of my friends came over and she was so kind about the way she helped me pack. She, uh, she was folding things up nicely before she put them in the boxes. She wasn't overfilling the boxes. When she helped me pack the truck, she, she was arranging boxes very carefully. Uh, so that things fit, but weren't too cramped. And, you know, if you want to be a Langsian about it, you can think, hey, you know, I wonder if the patient experienced my intervention as a, you know, as though it was like, I'm, a, I'm somebody who's trying to uh, gingerly help him organize his psychic contents so that he can get ready to move. Okay. So yeah, it's just have fun with it, right? It's just like dream interpretation. Um, it's uh, we'll talk about the limits and risks of bias in all this. Um, it, it looks like somebody uh, drew on the screen. Can anyone else see that? Is that? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, but in, in the general principle here is that uh, confirmatory thoughts 
for, for Langs might include thoughts about a helpful person or memories of other times that you were helpful, especially helpful doctors. Here's a fun one. You've been working with a patient for two months. Um, you, you think you're doing a great job. You think the therapy's going well. And then they come in and they say, you know what? I feel like my Prozac is finally starting to kick in. I feel like the Prozac is really working. My psychiatrist is really helping me. And you're like, if you're like me and you're full of competitiveness and, and uh, greed and envy and, and you wanna get the credit for the good work, you get all mad inside and say, it's, it's not the meds, it's the therapy. Well, if you, if you wanna be Langsian about it, Langs would say, actually this reference to the medication and the psychiatrist might be an implicit latent reference uh, to your helpfulness that the patient is experiencing your, uh, your interventions as a pill that's helping them feel better. So that of course helps me feel better. Uh, Non-confirmatory responses might include references to harmful figures, especially uh, references to figures who are having problems with their sensorium, who can't see, can't hear, tone deaf singers, um, people who lost their glasses, right? If all of a sudden a, a patient is talking about someone who can't see, my ears perk up and I'm like, oh my goodness, in what ways, what have I been blind to? What have I not been perceiving? And is there a possibility this patient is experiencing me as blind to something about them? Now, um, there are limits to using verbal data alone, just like ritualistic, dogmatic reliance on any single channel of gaining information is problematic. The pros are, of course, that this can be a source of immediate feedback about our interventions, which is helpful for uh, figuring out how we're going to conduct the rest of the session uh, and treatment planning. And, and also there's the, the possibility that this feedback is offered non-consciously. So it hasn't been doctored by the patient's uh, interpersonal defenses the way uh, a conscious response might be. Uh, and it's, and it's, so it's possible that it's not conscious, spontaneous. That's at least what the theory would say. Uh, some cons would uh, include that not all patient data is verbal. So we need uh, other ways of listening for uh, signals about response intervention that include nonverbal channels, which is where we're gonna go next. And, and the other main risk <clears throat> is sort of a bias risk in our interpretation of the patient's narratives, right? There's, uh, this, is, this style of listening for the latent content, the implicit unconscious response in a patient's narratives uh, is sort of hermeneutic. It's like interpreting poetry or interpreting the Bible, right? And so it is going to be impacted by our subjectivity, by our history, by our biases. Uh, and probably the, the biggest risk would be like our narcissistic biases, our confirmation biases, right? So if I'm pretty convinced my intervention is good, I may selectively attend to responses that, uh, that I could interpret as confirmatory responses. If I'm a therapist with self-esteem problems, or if I'm going through a rough day and I'm sort of down on myself, I may selectively attend to the stories about negative and harmful figures and think, oh God, that's, this is a commentary about me. This is, uh, this, this is a displaced reference to how unhelpful I've been. 
right? And get all stressed out and down on myself. So we need additional data points to cross-reference these hypotheses against um, to see whether they garner more support from other channels of data collection. Okay, I've been going for about a half hour or no, wow. Yeah, yeah, about a half, more than a half hour. Let's stop uh, for maybe just a couple questions before we move on to the next stuff. Any questions you wanna share? You can write them into the chat. Barbara Christie is here who taught me everything I know about everything. Hi, Barbara, I miss you, it's good to see you. Um, if anyone needs a really good supervisor, Barbara Christie, you still su accepting supervisees? Well, that's... <laughs> <laughs> Can't see you, lost you. Well, anyway, I highly recommend. Um, Susanna, you were talking, but we couldn't hear you. Oh, hi, Barbara. So I just, um, people have called in from Finland and... You can just look in the chat for sort of whoever, you can see who's in the audience. It's like a great group. So thanks everybody for calling in, zooming in. Yeah, so special. Thank you. Okay, well look, write your questions in the chat. We'll get to them, we'll have time for it at the end. And in the meantime, we'll, um, we'll, we'll move on um, to the next screen share. Okay, and this is the part that many of you, all you ISTDP, EDT people who are here are gonna know about for, uh, as, as a channel of listening for response intervention from the nonverbal channel, uh, I find the work of Habib Davalu especially helpful. Uh, Habib Davalu is, uh, is still living. He's in Montreal, Canada, and he is the um, developer and founder of Intensive Short-Term Dynamic Psychotherapy shameless plug for the intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy program at the Washington School of Psychiatry, where I used to be on the faculty. It's a wonderful program. Again, it's like everything, everything I learned about everything for, at least started there, uh, thanks to the great teachers there. Um, and David Lou, one could argue. Um, uh, let, let's mute everybody. You got that, Susanna? Yeah, okay. Uh, one could argue that David Liu uh, built on or took Freud's structural hypothesis from inhibition symptoms and anxiety and uh, found a way to make it more clinically usable. So Freud's structural hypothesis or part of it, a corollary hypothesis of it, is that if defenses, the ego's defenses are interfered with, um, or if repressed impulses and ideas come nearer to consciousness, the ego will experience anxiety. But I've studied this book carefully to try and find if he, if he says anywhere how and whether that anxiety will be clinically observable, observable in the clinic. Now, Freud talks about observable manifestations of anxiety elsewhere in other papers, but as far as I have found in inhibitions and symptoms and anxiety, he says things like um, the, the, anxi the anxiety will be felt in the ego, right? But that, that leaves us with the question, well, how will that look? And how will I know if my patient is, 
experiencing anxiety in the session. So Davenlu adds to this hypothesis. He's basically saying, um, so Freud's hypothesis is if defenses are interfered with and or repressed impulses and ideas come nearer to consciousness, the ego will experience an anxiety. Davenlu's hypothesis is that this anxiety will be visually observable. It's going to have characteristic patterns and we're going to be able to track it systematically in session. And he called this the pathways of anxiety discharge. Um, and he, uh, yeah, so let, let's just, without getting into too much detail, we'll just move on. So here's, here's just a, a graphic of the idea that linking uh, the triangle of conflict that Davenlu uses uh, to talk about how repressed feelings and impulses trigger anxiety that necessitates defense and um, the Freudian version from 1926. Um, so for Davenlu, uh, one variant, and for, for our purposes today, the only variant we're gonna talk about because for better or worse, it's, <clears throat> it's the most important for this conversation. Uh, the, the way this anxiety is gonna manifest is in the striated muscles the voluntary of the voluntary nervous system. So these are any of the muscles in your body that you can move voluntarily. Um, uh, and for Davenlu, he found that it has a, a, a will, will, tension will move throughout the body with a specific pattern, starting with tension in the fingers and hands, then up the forearms into the neck and shoulders. And um, uh, the sort of sine qua non of the strided muscle tension, strided muscle anxiety for Davenlu and for all you ISTDP people is the sign respiration, which is a sign that there is strided muscle tension in the uh, intercostal muscles, the muscles between the ribs that the body is involuntarily trying to release, trying to discharge. Uh, and so for the ISTDP therapist, the Davenluian therapist, um, size or what you could call psi equivalents, which include these sort of large gross motor shifts in the chair, um, uh, giggles, sometimes yawns. You know, I'm gonna go put on my sound machine because my colleague just came in and I, I'm, I'm being loud. Hang on. Um, so for the ISTDP therapist, these size and size equivalents um, are a sign of a valid intervention in the sense, that's, that's the asterisk, in the sense that um, it's a sign that some defense or some resistance pattern is being adequately interfered with. And as a result, some previously defended against anxiety-provoking psychological content, your feelings, impulses, memories, is nearing consciousness. Um, and, and you could divine from Davenlu, he, he doesn't, I don't think, ever make this explicit exactly, but you could divine these corollary hypotheses uh, that if an intervention adequately interferes with an active form of defense, the patient will show stride and muscle tension, you'll see a sigh. If the intervention focuses on a non-active defense, or uh, so that would be like if you're trying to address a defense that the patient's not actually using, you know, you're referring to some defense that was happening last week, but isn't present in this session. Um, or if your intervention does not adequately interfere with the active defense or resistance, the patient will not sigh. So, you know, so, uh, 
let's uh, does not adequately interfere is something like say the patient has like a detached contemptuous way of relating to you it's kind of a, a transference resistance a reenactment of a pathological pattern from their past in their relationship with you and you try to comment on it but you only wind up commenting on one aspect of it right like their gaze avoidance um, per this hypothesis that intervention won't be powerful enough. It won't adequately interfere with the resistance enough to produce a sigh. Um, and then another corollary hypothesis is if intervention interferes too much with too much with resistance, the patient will not sigh, but will experience dysregulated anxiety, flooding, right? We're not gonna talk too much about that today. <clears throat> That's a different lecture. Um, and then a, a, this is just sort of a, another variant of what I just said. So I'm gonna skip it in the interest of time. Uh, so, so now we have two streams of data we can be collecting about response to intervention. We're looking at strided muscle tension, sighing respirations, gross motor movements, uh, ringing of the hands. Uh, and we're looking at the latent content, the uh, non-conscious or the, uh, the narratives the patient offers from which we can infer uh, through our sort of interpretive efforts uh, what their responses have been to our intervention. And we then have the opportunity to cross-reference those data points uh, using what Tansy and Burke recommended uh, in their book on countertransference using multiple streams of inference, right? So, and, and that makes sense, right? The more data we have, the better, and the more forms we have that data in, the better when we're trying to make clinical decisions. Um, so once we have um, once we have more than one stream of data, uh, we, can, we can start uh, having these fun moments where, uh, okay, I made an intervention, the patient sighed, they went on to reveal information I've never heard before, and then tell a story about a helpful figure. It's like, wow, ding, 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 jackpot. I've gotten three confirmatory signs that my intervention was helpful. Maybe that's a way of intervening or a theme or a thread of the session that I can stick with because it seems to be producing. Uh, as opposed to, oh, I made a, a confrontation to a patient. I got no sigh in response. And I got three stories about unhelpful people. And uh, the patient told a story about a time when they felt like, like they were being persecuted. Mm -hmm. Right, and it's like, oh goodness gracious, that may have been an errant intervention, and uh, maybe I should uh, adjust my tack based on that feedback. Um, so that that uh, can make our uh, help guide our listening and guide our intervening when we have more than one stream of data. We can start addressing these thorny clinical questions, right? Like, these are the things that plague us as psychodynamic therapists. Is this silence productive, right? Okay, well, now that I'm, I'm wondering, is this, we've been silent for, for two minutes together, how can I assess whether it's been productive? Well, I can't in this moment listen to verbal, uh, for verbal signals of confirmation, but how about this? Is the patient tense? Is the patient sighing with reliable frequency? Um, then you might hypothesize following Davenu that something about the silence is either interfering with defense or helping something 
that has been defended against move closer to consciousness because we're seeing these nonverbal signals of anxiety. So that's, you know, we're, we're constantly having to decide, is this silence sort of a pregnant one from which something beautiful is going to be born or is it a detached resistance silence? Um, and we could use Davin Lewin ideas to assess that. And then say, you know, after a period of silence, the patient says, you know, I, for the first time in this therapy, I finally feel like I'm leaving today not feeling worse. I feel like I'm not feeling persecuted or stressed or like I've done something wrong. And then as a, as a therapist, you can say, oh my goodness, I think every other time this patient's been silent, I've interrupted it with an intervention. <laughs> and this time I didn't. They sighed the whole time. So they were working in there. There was unconscious forces fighting each other in there. And then they stated that they for once didn't feel persecuted or pressured or stressed leaving the session. You know, that, that could support, oh, okay, at least for this session, some silence was helpful to this patient. Next question, did my intervention work? Did my interpretation or my intervention towards the patient's resistance, towards this problematic interpersonal pattern they're doing with me and with everybody else in their life, did it actually work? Uh, well, we can use Langs and Davenu to try to help ourselves get some data to try to provisionally answer that question, right? You confront something going on with the patient, you get a big sigh, and immediately they open up about some themes from their history you've never heard before. Well, that's two data points, one Davenu, one Langs, that say the patient's unconscious liked your intervention. Uh, say you make the same interpretation later in the day with a different patient, and you get no sigh, the patient's body is totally flat and calm, and uh, you get a story about uh, a tone-deaf musician, you know, uh, then you're like, oh, shit, I, okay, I was wrong. Um, are these associations truly free, okay? What a, what a thorny issue for psychoanalysis. Is the patient associating freely towards anxiety-provoking contents towards that which has been defended against or away from it, which would not be a truly free association. It would be a defensive, avoidant associations. Well, we can use Davidlew and Langs to look at that, right? The patient's talking, uh, a, a patient who's talking, 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 but you're not seeing any signs of tried and muscle tension. Uh, the stories you're hearing are about things that are boring, things that are not challenging, people who are being hoodwinked and bamboozled, uh, uh, people who are being tricked, uh, then you might say, huh, it's not associated towards anything anxiety provoking. And I wonder if I'm being tricked into thinking this is free association, uh, but this is actually all detachment and avoidance versus a patient who's uh, talking to you. And as they're talking, they're taking these deep sighs, they're tense in the chair and shifting around in the chair. And, um, and they're getting to more and more affectively laden contents as they go, right? Th that can be a really helpful way of answering what is a very thorny clinical question. So, I mean, you know, the, a short version here is uh, these ideas, these ways of listening can help us address the question that's always on us, which is wh what am I gonna do here? What can I say or do to help this patient right now uh, <clears throat> to, in, in provisionally answering that question and trying to test out our theories about that, um, we can be looking at, you know, what have our interventions seem to be producing 
in terms of uh, you know what's getting a positive response, what what's getting confirmatory markers in response, and what's not, so that we ought to not try it again, right? If, if the patient starts telling you a story about the dentist who drove them prematurely, you might want to ease up on the confrontation until next week or a, or a couple weeks from now. Okay? So it's it's really using the patient's verbal and nonverbal responses as, as a way of doing self-supervision live in the session, okay? Which we all badly need, you know? If only, if I could have Barbara Christie there supervising me during the session, that would be great. But since I can't, I better have some tools and techniques for supervising myself and getting through it until I can look over the material with a supervisor. So we actually, Miraculously, let, let's see if some questions came through, but miraculously, we have time to look at some clinical material, right? We're, we're going till 45, right? Yes. Wow, we, we might have time for uh, clinical material and question and answer. How amazing. I must be talking really fast. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna share with you some transcript from uh, an initial session that happened maybe two and a half years ago. Um, it's going to demonstrate some of the ideas we've been looking at in this lecture, but also we're gonna be looking at other principles of response to intervention and other sort of tricks and tactics and techniques for analyzing response to intervention that come up uh, in, this, in this session that I'll you know, try to be a little bit didactic about. So he comes in, I've never met him before. And I say, uh, probably the best thing to do if you want is to let me know what you're wanting to work on together today and, and maybe going forward. And he says, yeah, so I, uh, I know we talked a little bit on the phone, but uh, I'm just kind of struggling with relationships. Okay, so how do we like his response to intervention so far? Thoughts about the response intervention? Thumbs up or thumbs down? <laughs> Is it a good response so far or bad response? Right, Davenu would be happy. Mark Stein knows, Mark Stein knows Davenu would be happy um, in that something about, uh, something about my intervention, this invitation to share a bit about what's going on has either interfered with some defense adequately or encouraged exposure to something that's been defended against adequately, that anxiety is being experienced in the body. And we see it in the form of this big sighing respiration that he takes. He says, I'm kind of struggling with, rela with relationships and how to either live with the one I have or move on. I've been struggling pretty much my, I've been struggling pretty much the whole time my wife and I have been married more because of history, which I can get into in more detail. And it's been really tough. And while I think it's the right thing for me, it's been really tough to stay happy. So he gives sort of a vague, very surface level description of what's going on. In order to do good dynamic therapy, we're gonna to need to help him get more specific. Let's see if we can do that. My intervention is, mm-hmm. Uh, and in the past year, I did meet somebody else, and then he does this, and it's very pronounced in the, in the recording of it. He goes, huge gross motor shift in the chair, which again, 
I look at, and I think most ISC people, P people would look at, Davenport people would look at as a, a psi equivalent. In the past year, I did meet somebody else. So clearly there's something anxiety provoking about sharing this next level of detail about moving from vague to detailed, which that's pretty natural, um, who's probably overly patient and kind. And I'm just not sure that's the right thing either. So I'm just kind of struggling with balance. And I think that it's, it's stressing me out, trying to figure out which way to go. So big sigh in response to thinking about which way to go, right? Which makes sense. Conflict, anxiety, which way to go? Something about reflecting on this conflict, sharing it aloud with me, tenses up his body, right? It's working against, uh, like, and, and again, I'm not having to intervene very much here other than to listen and nod. So this is a man who we could say, if we're going to follow Freud and Davila, he's working against his own resistance. He's freely associating right now in the sense that unprompted, he is moving uh, from a more defensive and vague thing to a more specific thing. And we can tell that not just because of our analysis of the content, but because as he's associating, we're seeing signals of anxiety in his body, which reflects that he is moving towards things that have been defended. Um, and I haven't taken time off from either of these relationships, so it's been kind of hard to kind of chart my path. And then he does this. It's, I don't know if you can see my whole body, but he kind of folds his hands and pauses and then looks at me and nods. Okay? Which is polite social prompting. It's your turn to speak, right? Um, and, he, and he has this kind of like expected look. It's, it's not just a look. He's, there's, a, there's a clear signal. And th those who have seen this tape have agreed with my assessment that it's an expected look. Now, unconscious of this and responding in the socially appropriate way that I have been trained to respond to people, um, I immediately respond to this expectant look, this sort of pressure that I should speak. And I say, I just make a summary comment, pretty innocuous. Okay, so there's kind of concerns about balance and happiness and which way to go in these relationships. And he says, yeah, and then he sighs, right? So I've made a completely inert statement. I, I don't think it was my statement that is helping him associate to a more anxiety provoking level of content. I think this is just, he's a relatively healthy guy who's doing this work very well. So he takes a big sigh. Oh yes, because he's going through the next level of detail. I've known my wife for 11 years and we've been married for about six. We had a rocky go of it at parts, again, vague, but there's been positives as well. I think things are coming back to a positive and it's not exactly where I want to be. I think I struggle with her as an individual. So again, very vague, like what does that even mean? My intervention is, hmm, I still do a lot for her. Okay, a little more detail. I'm still involved. We took some time apart about six months ago because I was tired of the way I was being treated. But it's sort of come back together without much discussion about why. It's sort of organically come back together. But it hasn't reached the level of positivity where I'm sort of happy that that's where I want to be long term. I say, okay. So you're seeing my brilliant interventional style here. Um, uh, and he says, so that's so... 
I think I have a lot of guilt towards the other person who has become more of a friend long-term, but I have some guilt that I haven't been able to deal with her in a way she probably deserves to be dealt with in a relationship. Oh, so that's sort of the struggle, I guess. So part of it is not knowing where I want to be. Not knowing where I want to be. And then he does the same thing again. Looking to me with, with a real prompt that I ought to speak. And this time I wait a minute, right? Um, I'm a interpersonalist fundamentally. This is the Washington School of Psychiatry after all. I, I follow precept like whatever you're feeling pressured to do, don't do it. Do the opposite from Weston Havens. Uh, uh, Edgar Levinson, do not be transformed, right? So if I'm feeling pressure from the patient to, tr to transform, to sort of bend to uh, interpersonal pressure from them, I might try to counter that. And so I stay silent and there's 10 seconds of silence. And as the silence goes on, his hands really start clenching, right? Which to me, again, sign that my intervention of silence is working against a defense, which at, at this moment, my hypothesis is this, um, this sort of expectant look, this effort to get me to speak is a way he's somehow avoiding speaking himself, right? Sort of passing, passing the talking stick to me as a defense against continuing to share. So I'm working against this defense by countering his expected look with silence. His hands show more and more anxiety. And then he goes on, he says, and so, yeah, it's, it's not making me feel overwhelmingly sad. Okay, ISTDP people, it's not making me, or all Freudian people too, it's not making me feel overwhelmingly sad. What defense is that? You could write it in the chat or say it. Negation. Negation, Joe Giral. Joe Giral's the fastest. You get the prize. Uh, uh, Joe Giral, a psychoanalyst and an ISTDP person. So naturally the most primed for, uh, <laughs> for a quick answer. Uh, so we see a negation, right? It's not making me feel overwhelmingly sad, which we might translate hypothetically as I, it's making me feel overwhelmingly sad. But the only way he can confess this at this level of closeness and intimacy is if it's hidden in a negation. And again, for, for ISTP people, that's another sign of positive response intervention that we like. When we start seeing negations, uh, <clears throat> we think of that as a sign of increasing unconscious therapeutic alliance, increasing uh, positive stuff cooking in the alliance. Uh, it's not making me feel overwhelmingly sad. It's making me feel confused, making me feel stressed and out of whack. So he almost immediately doubles back on his negation and confesses that which he had negated. So I try and do a lot for other people but I can't get myself past the idea that maybe I shouldn't be doing so much. Maybe I should be taking better care of myself. And that's why I felt I couldn't do it on my own. So I decided I needed some help to get some guidance there. And again, he comes back with the expectant look. And even there also in his verbal content, there's also a little pressure on the therapist, right? Get some guidance there, okay? So I fall for that immediately. I feel the pressure. I'm a human being. And I say, and, uh, you know, and I compulsively just say the first thing that comes to mind. I hope I'm not the only person that does that when you're under a certain amount of social pressure to perform from the patient. Uh, and I say, and what is it you're finding you're struggling to do on your own? Innocuous enough question. It actually produces a big sigh 
Um, I don't know. And actually, here's another thing. His speech for the first time is a little spontaneous. He has to think a little bit, right? Um, and one listening strategy you can think about is when the patient is able to very freely and smoothly speak spontaneously, there's, a, to me, a higher likelihood that that's at least somewhat defensive speech, whereas if the patient is kind of struggling to put their next thought together, it's coming from something more, um, more challenging for them to speak about openly, uh, something more raw, anxiety-provoking. Um, I still have a lively career. I sold my company this year. I've had a lot of change as far as my career goes. But what I'm struggling with is, what do I need to be happy in my personal life? And that's where I'm struggling. I, I wish it was black and white and I could say, and I say, oh yeah, that's kind of a nebulous problem. Another brilliant intervention. Um, yeah, because in some ways it's impossible to know in advance whether a relationship is gonna make you happy. Now let's think, so there's an intervention, okay? Um, my hypothesis, or my feeling, my intuition at this moment in the session, and I, I do recall this, is that I was smelling omniscience speaking. I was thinking he was coming to therapy, hoping that I was going to tell him which was the right choice, the wife or the girlfriend. And so my first intervention here is an effort to counter, maybe subtly, not perfectly articulately, uh, that concern. What I thought I was seeing is sort of omniscience seeking. So I say, because in some ways it's impossible to know in advance whether a relationship is gonna make you happy. Now, interesting what happens, no sigh in response to my intervention. Now again, does that mean it was a totally inert, ineffective or bad intervention? No, we have to listen for other things, but it is sometimes telling when, you know, if you don't get a good, crisp, robust sigh or some other stride in muscle signal in response to your intervention, uh, you might not really, either you haven't adequately addressed the resistance or you're not seeing what's really there, which I think is what happens here. So anyway, he goes on without sigh. He says, yeah, and in some ways it did, but I feel like I've grown as an individual and my wife has kind of been static. I handle a lot of stuff for her. And I could speak up and say that we need to divide things more evenly. I'm not saying she doesn't do anything, but I think that's just always been the nature of me to just do more for people and not big gross motor shift in the chair again, big strided muscle signal, not ask for anything in return. And here's another Langsian trick you can, you can try. I've heard John Fredrickson the great teacher from the Washington School of Psychiatry, call this preview of coming attractions. That when the patient is describing the problematic relationships that bring them to the therapy, you can start to hypothesize uh, that this is a latent reference, an implicit reference to how they might experience your relationship or how they might preconceive therapy. So this man is thinking, um, in relationships, I do for people, and I don't ask for a lot in return. And even the thought of asking for a lot in return and saying that out loud made his body go so anxious it needed to discharge anxiety very visibly. Um, so, so I need to start worrying about that and thinking about that as, okay, what, it, 
how is that going to play out here? Um, uh, is, is he going to ask me for a lot? Um, is he going to expect me to ask for a lot? Is he going to try to do a lot for me? Um, you, you know, in what ways is he going to enact this so that we'll have to work on it in our relationship? Preview of coming attractions. So I find myself still doing that, even though I'm not completely happy. Hmm. Even when we took a time apart, I was still doing a lot of stuff. So that's kind of your nature, you're saying. Uh, even though you can see it's not making you happy, that doesn't make it easy to transform. It just adds more to the burden, I think. Hmm. It's kind of like, well, when do you stop? Hmm. And I think that's compounding it a bit more and making it tricky to say, take this time for yourself or take time for somebody else. It's kind of all jumbled. And then he goes back to this, what is now a kind of predictable interpersonal signal. He folds his hands, gives an expectant look, kind of prompts me. And I'm like, all right, I'm gonna wait this one out. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna wait this out. I'm gonna counter this sort of expectant look uh, with silence and see what that produces on his end. So it's 15 seconds of silence in the video and you see his hands start to go more tense and then you see a kind of awkward smile and then he starts to speak. Uh, after 15 seconds of, of us waiting, it's a tense, awkward 15 seconds because I'm not doing what I'm socially supposed to do. Uh, and he says, yeah, it's like, it's kind of weird. I mean, should I kind of go through the backstory of how we got to this point? Like, how should I go about it? Right? So he's saying, like, what should I talk about next? How should I go about this session? Um, how would you characterize that response? Let's, here's, here's one simple way of, um, uh, is, it, is it feeling anxiety or defense? To go back to that triangle of conflict, his response. Is it a defensive response or a expressive response. I go for defense. And Joe Giral, or somebody who wants to help Joe Giral, what kind of defense, how would you characterize it? How would you label it? Trying to go dependent. Yeah, it's kind of a dependent move. It's a- <clears throat> Passivity. Uh, passivity, right? And in line with all those is kind of a, a I'm calling it a projection of will, right? Ultimately, it's up to him to decide what he wants to talk about in this session. Uh, but he's giving that responsibility to me and, and actually to really fit it into his pattern, I would say he wants to figure out what would be pleasing to me, right? If we go back up to, to his description of his relationship style, I tend to do for people and not ask for a lot in return. And so I actually take his, his question to be kind of a, out of a wish to please, like Mari, what's, what's the right way? How can I do this right for you? Um, as opposed to um, uh, Mari, I'm trying to cast this responsibility to make decisions onto you. Um, and so I counter that projection uh, of, of responsibility and will by saying, you know, it's really up to you. Ultimately, the hope is that you'll get what you want out of it. Um, so feel free to talk. Can we, uh, can we mute everybody? Um, 
questions. Uh, so feel uh, so feel free to talk about whatever makes sense to you to talk about, so that you can get what you want out of this. So I'm countering that projection of will, and he says, "Yeah, okay," and he thinks for a second. Hmm. Big sigh. So I'm like, "Ding, ding, ding!" My intervention adequately countered that resistance enough that something anxiety-provoking can break through. And he says, so I have some resentment. And the path of the resentment is that, and a bunch of different things that we could talk about. We see some things about the listening process that, that I'm talking about with Langs and Davenu, especially the Davenu stuff. You're seeing a lot more in the way of the nonverbal signaling of response to intervention. But you're also seeing uh, the verbal, <clears throat> verbal signs of confirmation in terms of increasing detail, uh, uh, things that sort of add flesh and life to our understanding of this man and uh, his relationship patterns. Um, and also we see how immediately in the first moments of the first session, this, this is about six minutes worth of transcripts. Um, this man begins to relate to me in the same way he related to his wife. Right, his first direct question to me sort of boils down to, how do I please you? How do I, how do, I do this right to make you happy? Uh, which, which is the problematic relationship dynamic that had kept him in a marriage that had been very unsatisfying. Um, so that's, uh, that's my two cents. We have about 15 minutes. I can look and see if there's been questions. Um, Yep, yep, Mark Stein got it, giving priority to me, excellent. Um, let's see, uh, Buster, how do you reconcile interpreting patient manifest material in a Langsian way while probably not adhering to his rather strict conceptualization of the therapeutic frame? Wow, cool question. Wouldn't Lang say that all communications, I gotta make this bigger, um, that all communications would have to be interpreted as commentaries on frame violations. For example, the issue of telehealth, entering and leaving your office through the same door as horrible examples of bad frame. Who's Buster? I wanna know this because Buster knows Lang. Yeah, it might help to have people talk the question, especially the complex question like that. So Buster, oh, Petter. Petter, why don't you ask the question? Oh, Petter, good to see you, man. Um, Let's let's think about that out loud because uh, one way my mind goes with it is there are dogmatic there are more and less dogmatic ways of applying Lang's thought. Um, one issue that we run into with Lang's, which is I'm glad to be talking about it because it's it's a meaningful critique and you see it in the work of Merton Gill, Erwin Hoffman mostly. Uh, is Lang's tendency to have what you could call an objectivist fantasy, to feel as though or think as though um, his perspective on what's happening in the session is objective. So when Lang's would supervise students, and you could see this in his books, um, he would hear a, a patient... Um, uh, he would hear a patient's response, say, like, like the, the dentist who drilled prematurely. And Langs would say, that means, he would make an equation, practically, 
he would say, that means that your interpretation was harmful and you need to rectify the frame. You, you showed your unconscious aggression and that's something you need supervision and therapy for, right? Um, and he would state that as though it was a fact. Uh, Gill and Hoffman, who are very worth reading, right? Analysis of the Transference Volume 2, Ritual and Spontaneity in the Psychoanalytic Situation, beautiful thinking. They, the way they approach listening for latent content is that, okay, the patient, you made this intervention, the patient told a story about, um, about the, uh, uh, the dentist who drilled prematurely. Um, they would say, so it's, it's possible that the patient experienced your intervention as an assault, but we lack the objectivity to know whether it was truly an assault. Yes, is it plausible that there were assaultive aspects to this intervention? Sure, aggressive aspects to the intervention, sure. But we also know that this patient tends to construe lots of different types of feedback as assaultive. So maybe it's, uh, so it, it's, it's, uh, theirs is a more co-constructive vision. And that's why they're more associated with sort of later relational turn. Um, uh, when, when they look at a patient's response, they're seeing it as a, a plausible response to what the therapist has done, uh, but not necessarily a damning one that says the patient was wrong, uh, which, is, which is less strict and I think more forgiving and generous than Lang's would tend to be. Um, in, in my experience of Lang's and my, my knowledge of Lang's. Um, and then the this, this stuff about the frame, let's see what he was not adhering to the frame. Wouldn't Lang say all communications would be interpreted as commentaries on frame violations? Uh, he, no, he wouldn't say they're only commentaries on frame violations. They can be commentaries on really any aspect of the relationship, although he, his theory was that um, if there is some insecurity of some kind in the frame, uh, the patient will be very likely, uh, and it is, it is very probable that anything the patient's gonna talk about in that session is going to be a commentary on something happening in the frame. Uh, and, and that they'll continue to do that until the problem with the frame is rectified. So you have a patient who's not paying their bill, you have a patient who's been missing sessions, you had to suddenly reschedule for Langs, you should expect to hear a bunch of stories that sound like reverberations or reactions to uh, those issues in the frame. Um, and, uh, and you know, for, for Langs, I, I, you'll, you'll also hear stories about a secure frame. You know, he does believe that sometimes we can do a good job as therapists and so you'll hear stories about people doing their job well, you know, the trash man who comes at the same time every week and is really tidy and kind, you know. Um, uh, but if you but if you look at some of Lang's work and also the work of uh, his students, like um, David Livingston Smith's book, Hitting Conversations, you do tend to see it's like everything gets interpreted as, as an unfavorable commentary, a, a derogating commentary on something the therapist has been doing.
and yeah, and later people like Gil and Hoffman are, are sort of moderate that to become a bit less super egoic. How's that, how's that better? Does that help? Feel free to turn your mic on. He said thanks. He's on the oh. train. Oh. Can't speak. He's on the train. Okay, no problem. No problem. Uh, did other other questions come through? Um, no, I don't see any. Okay. Uh, well, I'll just be silent. I will counter the audience passivity. With Barbara silence. has it. Barbara, you want to ask your question? Unmute. I didn't want to ask a question. I wanted to add something that we, because we're using Zoom, so many of us. And I just wanted to add how much I rely on facial expression, the raising of an eyebrow. I mean, the most subtle <clears throat> facial expressions as signs to watch. Right, and, and it's always good to have <clears throat> multiple streams of data, right? Facial expressions, sighing respirations, latent content in the narratives being told, our counter-transference feelings, right? That's one stream of data that we just didn't have time to talk about today is, um, okay, uh, uh, I feel like a child who's being ignored. That's my subjective experience right now. Um, the patient is not signaling any sighing in response to my interventions. Uh, and he's telling stories about annoying people who try to get close to him, but uh, who he feels grossed out by. Okay, ding, ding, ding. Three data points from three separate streams of intervention that, that help us build our hypothesis, build our mental model of what's happening in this relationship. Um, so yeah, uh, facial expressions would, would be an important chunk of a, a longer lecture um, as we're looking at all the different data streams. You know, one more thing I'll, I'll go back to uh, is uh, maturation of communication as a sign of response to intervention. So here in this last slide, the patient is communicating to me. He's, he's, he's implicitly saying, your turn. I want to know what you want. I want to know what you think. That's what his body language is saying. But I can't confront that or address that if it's in this implicit mode, right? But because I um, refuse to enact the complementary role and tell him what to say next or jump in with my next pressured compulsive intervention, uh, there's pressure on him to move his form of communication from this more juvenile implicit, like, I hope Mari will just get this social signal to explicit. It moves from implicit to explicit, uh, regressive to mature, where he goes from saying something with his body through action to saying something verbally, which is where we need people to be to do psychodynamic therapy. Um, and I, th so there are ideas about maturation of communication. Uh, John Fredrickson picks up on it in his work, and I would wager he got it from Oh, it's I'm gonna blank on the name. It'll, it'll come to me. The, the book is called Children of Action and Impulse. Space, Children of Space, Time, Action and Impulse. 
And that book is a lot about how over the course of therapy, successful dynamic therapy, more disturbed patients, especially children, will their communication will move from a pr predominantly acting out mode to a, a more verbal mode. Uh, Langs talks about that too, incidentally. So that's another sign of positive response to intervention. So we've got all the Langs, all the Dav and Lou, other stuff from ISTDP, negations, uh, and also, uh, did anyone get a chance to look up that book? It's a uh, Children of Space and Time, Action and Impulse. And George Rawl, I skipped the thing about the red thread, but I guess I have time to talk about it now. Uh, the, the red thread is just a, a term I've seen in, in old classical analytic literature for um, the predominant theme, the live wire. You know, what's this session really about? You know, is it, is it about the dentist who drilled you prematurely, or is it about something that happened here between us and how it felt to you? Um, and um, I, oh, Rudolf Eckstein, thank you. Thanks a million, Susanna. Um, Rudolf Eckstein wrote that book. Um, so the red thread, we can, one of the ways we can sort of divine the red thread, which is sort of a, a, a metaphor like the pulse that I was talking about, um, is to um, look at what triggers signaling. When, we, when I talk about X, the patient gets a big sigh. It's like, oh my goodness, that must be an important clinical surface for us right now. This must be important uh, for us to look into. Alan Abbas calls it the front of the system, right? Like what's live, what's the live wire right now that has to be addressed? Um, and um, both in the patient's responses, verbal and, and nonverbal, you can use these sort of strategies or techniques to try to assess that. We've got about five more minutes. And, and you know, so again, these are just hypotheses. These are not laws. And I think the best thing to do, if you like, is to just on Monday morning, when you get to your clinic, try them out, you know, see what, what carries weight, see what holds water for you, see what helps you better listen to your patients. Um, you know, because uh, the other important thing is uh, because these are not laws, they're dynamic, right? You may discover something as you use these principles of listening that hasn't been written about, that's new. Um, and, um, you know, there's always the risk with these approaches to, to listening that will become rigid or ritualistic or stereotyped or dogmatic about it, which is fine. And it's a phase we'll all go through and it's something we'll all do when we're anxious. But these are also techniques that can lead to discovery and aid exploration. And um, it might be romanticized or idealist of me to, to hope that um, uh, people here and other people who learn about this stuff will use it to learn new things about the mind and, and how we work with it. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a lecture by Dr. Maury Joseph. For more, you can visit his website, maurijoseph.com. As always, huge thanks to Carl Abrahamson for providing the intro and outro music for Rendering Unconscious podcast. 
You can follow Carl at Twitter at C.A. Abrahamson, Instagram at Carl.Abrahamson, and TikTok at Carl Abrahamson. You can also follow his YouTube channel for links to lectures and podcasts he's been on, and visit his main website, carlabrahamson.com. You can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, and follow me at Instagram and Twitter at rawsin underscore, that's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore, or drvanessasinclair23 at TikTok. And now the song, Curious Motion, from the new album, Disturbance, a collaboration I did with Pete Murphy, available at his Bandcamp page, petemurphy.bandcamp.com. You can also find our music streaming at Spotify. Just search for Vanessa Sinclair and Pete Murphy. Enjoy. any situation, moment, or phase will turn to inertia and entropy if not eventually challenged and kept in motion. The opposite. Wrong. Different times everything for separate who they are. Not real. Free. This with each other. Absolute success. Alice thought that was very curious indeed. Energy indistinguishable. Total ethical and philosophical problems of humanity. Absolute success.